Hello, and welcome to another episode of Health Affairs This Week. I'm Jessica Bylander. And I'm Rob Lott. Each week, you'll hear from a rotating cast of journal and blog editors talking about the health policy news that has caught our eye. So this week, we're talking drug innovation and why it's so hard to find that sweet spot between bringing important new drugs to consumers and making sure those drugs are actually affordable for most of us. Yeah, Jess, this is one of those classic tensions, trade-off that really makes health policy so complicated. And for researchers, such a deep well of big and difficult questions to be explored. So we all saw how quickly vaccines and treatments for COVID-19 were developed and authorized during the pandemic. And I know many people are wondering why new treatments for other diseases don't get through as quickly. The answer is, it's complicated. COVID-19 has been basically our common foe this past year. And so, of course, governments went above and beyond to bring these products to consumers. And the reality is that clinical trials for non-COVID drugs actually slowed during the pandemic, with some being slowed down or stopped altogether. Yeah, everything about our lives was sort of turned upside down over the last year and a half. So it's not that surprising that um, it's true of clinical trials too, right? Yeah, and that concern actually prompted two U.S. lawmakers to introduce a new bill this month that provides a new type of drug development loan called biobonds to companies and universities to conduct some new clinical trials for new products. So to some extent, this raises for me an even bigger question. Does the U.S. have a drug innovation problem or not? It's really interesting, I think, because in a way, the authors of this bill would say yes, there is a problem, and their solution is to introduce another player into what is actually a pretty crowded field already. I think the conventional wisdom is that there are just two camps, right? Consumers and big pharma. But that's not exactly the case. Right. And I think that conventional wisdom has led to some really fiery debates. Yeah, it's easy to portray this dynamic as a one-dimensional push and pull between pharmaceutical companies we're supposed to love and appreciate because they're inventing life-saving medicine and rescuing people from pain and suffering, sickness and death. And they are. It's true. On the other hand, there are these pharmaceutical companies we're supposed to hate and resent because they're earning a profit and because their executives are so well-paid. And because the prices they charge can be really high. And to some extent, that's true, too. Yeah. And of course, the industry wants us to see them as the former. And a lot of people, meanwhile, want to see them as the latter, as the villains. Yeah, that was the idea last week when Congresswoman Katie Porter grilled the head of the pharmaceutical company AbbVie. She really let him have it. Let's take a listen to the audio. Roll the tape. (laughs) (laughs) Mr. Gonzalez, how much did you spend, did Abby spend on litigation and settlements from 2013 to 2018? Uh, I, I don't have that number offhand. We'll be happy to give it to you. Okay, $1.6 billion, $2.45 billion on R&D, $1.6 billion in litigation and settlements. What about marketing and advertising? How much does Abby spend on that? Uh, well, marketing and advertising, we spend about $4 billion a year. Yep, $4.7 one billion. How about executive compensation? 2013 to 2018. 2013 to 2018. It's probably on average about 60 million dollars a year. Try 334 on for size. 
So I always find Congresswoman Porter's work with the whiteboard uh, where she holds that up and really uh, lays out the facts to be pretty entertaining and satisfying too. But again, I think this belies the idea that this is just about big pharma on one hand versus consumers on the other. There are actually a lot of players on the field. And, you know, on one hand, you've got the big corporations like AbbVie, Pfizer, Johnson & Johnson. But some researchers have shown that a lot of the new drug development is actually not originating in-house from these entities. Instead, you also have what some people have called small pharma. These are less expansive biotech firms, many of which go all in on just one very specific project. Maybe they've spun off from an academic or basic science researcher building on just one big novel discovery that they're really hopeful about. Yeah, and these firms are thriving on venture capital to keep them going in those early phases of research, right? That's right. And so venture capital is yet another player in this space, right? Their hope, I think, to a large degree, is that their investment, you might call it a gamble, will pay off and that with their funding, the science will get far enough for one of the big pharma companies to buy in, to buy the small company. And that's how they hit the jackpot. It's this structure, I think, that some researchers I know Craig Garthwaite and Benedict Ippolito have written about this to some extent, uh, point to when they rebut the idea of price controls or international reference pricing. They say that without the promise of a big potential major windfall, venture capital might just pick up their money and go home or maybe go someplace completely different, uh, like solar panels or flying cars. Imagine. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah. And, you know, in addition to the billions that pharmaceutical companies spend on drug development, you have other players in the field with completely different interests. So, you know, we know for one, the National Institutes of Health funds most basic research. So, this can lead to the development of future drugs, you know, those those drugs that a smaller biotech company can further along and then a bigger company can buy up. But um, the government doesn't usually directly fund new drugs. So this can lead to some controversy when new drugs come out with high price tags. For example, I think we all remember the hepatitis C drug Sovaldi when that came out. So that was also initially developed by one of those smaller biotech companies that got a lot of its funding from NIH. So when a bigger company, Gilead, purchased the smaller company and charged $1,000 per pill initially, consumers were, you know, reasonably upset. Then in addition to NIH funding, you have philanthropic organizations, nonprofits, even state governments are funding early stage research. Rob, you wrote about some nonprofits that were investing in drug research a few years ago, right? Yeah, a few years ago, uh, 2014, actually, which seems like a a lifetime ago, um, Health Affairs had a a special issue on specialty drugs. And I wrote uh, an article about um, really these sort of disease-focused advocacy groups uh, focused on uh, what they called venture philanthropy, investing in this sort of early research as well as the translational research. It's uh, worth noting, I think, that the headline of that article was something like new players join the drug development game. And of course, here we are, what, seven years later? Um, and they are still, to some extent, kind of a sideshow or a, a sort of special case and not really representative of what's going on most of the time in terms of drug development. It just goes to show, I think, that change happens very slowly in this space. 
Another factor also is how common or rare the disease being investigated is and what that means for the potential market around any new discovery, right? Right. Take the example of Alzheimer's treatments, huge potential market where pharmaceutical companies have actually not been having a lot of luck. A lot of those clinical trials have failed to lead to viable treatments. And so a recent report actually showed that nonprofits and the federal government are now funding more um, of the new Alzheimer's drug development trials. So another interesting development, and um, we'll see how that plays out. Yeah, that's another big player on the field. And I think what we see when you take a step back or when you think about the new legislation introducing these biobonds are that you've got this sort of crazy quilt system where there's so many different people involved, each with their own interest. And when you try to make a little change here, it really ripples outward and affects everyone. Ultimately, you've got consumers in the middle who, again, want Uh, access to life-saving medications, want to see new investment in new cures, but also need to be able to afford those cures. And um, uh, and that's the tension really that we're talking about here. And we continue to struggle with it. That's right. Well, maybe that's a good spot to wrap up. Jess, thanks for chatting uh, to our listeners. If you enjoyed the podcast, subscribe, tell a friend. And uh, we'll look forward to talking to you all again next week. Bye.